Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to founders, people who have built the social enterprises that are improving lives for the world's poorest. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Andrew Cross. Andrew is the co-founder and CEO, longtime CEO, that's changing, but longtime CEO of Everwell Health Solutions. Everwell is used for one in five newly diagnosed tuberculosis patients in the world. Just for context, that's kind of a big deal. For those of you that might not be so familiar with tuberculosis, let me just say, one, it spreads through the air, like another airborne disease we're all familiar with. But two, if you catch it, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to die if you're not treated. And three, India has the largest TB burden in the world. So Andrew and Everwell being based in India is actually pretty strategic in terms of what they're doing. Andrew himself got a start over five years at Microsoft Research in India, imagining whole new ways of delivering medicine and changing behavior using cutting edge technology. And when it was time to bring that innovation to scale, he came up against the reality of how the world was and was not ready for what he had to offer. Over the years and the different incarnations of Everwell, he realized that in addition to holding on to his core innovations, the business of making change requires diving into the less glamorous, more complicated work of linking systems together, mapping out human workflows, and figuring out how do we solve the whole picture, the end-to-end needs of a healthcare worker treating someone with tuberculosis. Today, Everwell has grown dramatically beyond its initial start as a TB medication adherence tool to being the comprehensive end-to-end digital solution for managing patients with tuberculosis. Let's dive in. Andrew got a start studying computer science and engineering in the United States. He spent a short amount of time on Wall Street working within the financial institution, Goldman Sachs. And this was right around the time of the 2007 financial crisis. He emerged from that experience thinking he wanted something more. He wanted to get more in touch with the human side of technology. So then he took up a stint with OLPC, the One Laptop Per Child movement. At the time, OLPC was the digital development initiative in the aid sector, coming out of MIT with millions of dollars in funding and a ton of press coverage. OLPC has been credited with creating and kickstarting the modern market of ultra-low-cost laptops. When Andrew's time at OLPC was up, he landed a role within the prestigious Microsoft Research Team, specifically within the Technology for Emerging Markets group. He'll refer to this later as MSR Tem. As he puts it, he wasn't particularly interested in research. He wanted to work on technology, on social impact, and he was thrilled to just find a job that would pay him to do that kind of work. His first project was actually looking at the education space. Andrew looked at how could we apply high-tech computer vision to improve the effectiveness of low-cost paper systems in the classroom. So we were working with a school and kind of their problem at the time was they had large classrooms and it's very difficult, as anyone knows, to engage a large audience. So how can you engage that audience? And we had seen, you know, there's 
uh, something at that time that I had even used in my university days called a, a clicker. But basically, a professor or a teacher could ask a question. Everyone in the audience had this device. This was before smartphones, of course. They could answer A, B, or C, or D. And the professor could get some feedback from the audience, whether they understand the concept, whether they're even listening, whether they're awake, uh, and then use that to kind of gauge their teaching style. If everyone got the question right, we could move on. So that was something exciting we'd seen in other markets, but was just you know impractical in, in many of the schools we were working with because of infrastructure, cost, electronics, all of those things. So actually, originally, our goal was, can we make a low-cost version of that. And, and again, this becomes a theme for, for the work that turns into 99 Dots and Everwell, ultimately. But we ended up making a paper card, which at that time was called a cue card, which had a barcode or a machine-readable code on the front of the card so that a teacher at the front could use a smartphone or a webcam to kind of scan the audience and, and get the same results. So a student would hold up a card that said A, B, or C, or they would rotate it to indicate A, B, or C. So again, the teacher could ask a multiple-choice question. All the students could raise that up, and the teacher could quickly scan the room and get some feedback, you know, do the students understand. I think the advantage was that no one could copy each other because oftentimes you'd have the smart kid at the front raising their hand and everyone would just hear the answer. So this was a chance for the whole class to engage. So that was actually my first work in this space, you know, a research element to it. You have to build some computer vision at that time. Um, you know, now you could do that in probably an hour. But at that time, you know, took some computer vision work, have to build a tool, an app, things like that. Uh, so that was my first stand in kind of this bridge or this stepping into worlds of research, but software development, but also, you know, education and, and kind of stepping there. So that was my first project. Can I say that just sounds super cool, like working inside of a research lab, like one like Microsoft that has the funding and just playing around with all the coolest tech out there. That sounds super fun. Yeah, exactly the draw. You had the intellectual and support and security of the role, but you also had this kind of open-ended mandate to just do cool stuff. So <laughs> For sure. And there's a whole army of people that are Microsoft lifers, you know, whether you're in the lab or in the corporation, like Microsoft is a very comfortable place to live and doing research is super fun. Why didn't you stick with it? Why aren't you still there? Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question. And, you know, good thing is even, you know, my life outside, I have really good relationships still with everyone there. So I get a lot of the same benefits, mentorship and kind of relationships with colleagues who've, who've spent more of their career at Microsoft. Um, so, I, you know, just I mentioned I was there for an internship, never expected to stay longer, but fell in love with the work and the colleagues. And it was just the best time of my life. So I ended up staying as a, a, a research fellow at the time. It had a different name, but then became a research program manager. So that, that time got extended, but it, it did have a, an expiration date or, you know, there was a time when that changed. And ultimately, you know, we started a new project after this education work, which was in the healthcare space, which is, you know, what ultimately became Everwell. And I think just to shortly answer your question, then happy to dive in. But I think ultimately, once that idea had traction, once there was real application, there was real interest, there was an opportunity to scale it up, it was quickly, we quickly realized, myself and uh, my co-founders, Bill Tees and Nakul Gupta, we both are all realized that it was not a research project anymore. This is something that, you know, needs, you know, a bigger team. This is something that needs a different mentality because we're no longer kind of testing things in, you know, research settings or small environments. We're really talking about scaling something up and, and building something out of that. And that just quickly became not a research project. And while Microsoft has lots of opportunities to kind of translate research into product, at that time, you know, this wasn't part of their core work. Uh, it was in the healthcare space. Again, I, I can explain the idea more, but we were essentially working with hospitals and patients to try and encourage and support their adherence to medication. Um, so we, with the blessing of all of our, you know, uh, managers, bosses, with the whole blessing of the leadership, and that's why it's been such a you know fantastic relationship even going forward, we were able to spin this out into Everwell. And, and I think just, again, short answer to your question was that it wasn't, at some point it wasn't research. We had to make this real. And I think there weren't great mechanisms to make the research real without spinning out a different entity or having something that can champion this as a real product or real thing in the, in the real world. That makes a lot of sense. Can you talk a little bit about what the research was? Like, what was the hypothesis? What made it research? Absolutely. Yeah. Getting into the, the core idea that was 
ultimately led again to Everwell. This is 99 Dots, what we called it at the time, and we can explain that name, explain more about it as we go. Uh, but I think the core, again, I mentioned the way that the TEM group, the Technology for Emerging Markets group, worked, which was really, you know, we think we know something about technology, but we may not know things about healthcare. And some of our colleagues who know a lot about healthcare said, well, one of the you know challenges in TB, I think, as you said in the intro, it's a, it is a curable disease, and actually you can get free drugs available from the government to, to cure yourself. But the challenge is, uh, you know, there's many different strands and forms of TB, but, you know, even for the baseline initial kind of TB, it still takes six months of medication, daily pill ingestion, or again, there's different regimens, but you have to follow a medication ingestion regimen for at least six months. Yeah, and daily. At that time, actually, it was not daily, it was intermittent, which is even more challenging, three times a week for a while, and then daily for a while. So lots change in the, the healthcare space on the medicine side, but still, you need to follow a, a diligent, re, you know, regimen of ingesting medication for a long time. And that's challenging for anyone. I mean, anyone who wants to go jogging every day or floss every day, you know, it's a, it's a huge challenge. But for, you know, the population that was predominantly affected by TB, some of these concepts around taking a pill, you know, at first I don't feel well. So, of course, I take a pill when I don't feel well. But what happens with TB is if you do take a pill every day, you start to feel better. So why would I take a pill after I start to feel better? So I think that's one of the challenges. And of course, there's enormous complex stigma and other social situations and education, other things that contribute to this. But that was the kind of core challenge is if I start to feel better, why do I need to take a, keep taking medication? But as you know, as we sort of discussed, you know, not only is the first line you know tuberculosis dangerous, but if you start medications and don't finish it, you can develop a drug-resistant form of the disease, which we still do have medications for, but they're not as great. They involve injections, or they can involve injections. So it's really important to make sure that you finish the course of medication and, and get cured the first time. So I think that that was the core challenge: is how can we, if someone is correctly diagnosed, which is a challenge, but not what we are focused on, and someone has access to medication, which is a challenge, but not what we are focused on, how can we best support them to finish their treatment? And of course, you know, you have amazing counselors, you have amazing, you know, healthcare representatives that visit patients and do everything possible to sort of support them emotionally, and that's a big part of it is uh, just support counseling. So we wanted to see how else we could support them using technology. So I think the thought at the time, there was a very common phenomenon called missed calls. I think in Africa, it might be called flash, uh, flashing someone, which basically is a, a way to call them without incurring any cost. You call and then hang up. So you know someone has called you. So we thought, well, if, what if someone could give this call every time they take a, a dose? That way, a healthcare provider or someone could understand that they have taken their medication. And therefore, again, with the same idea that if you have 100 patients or 100 people under your care, uh, how do you direct your time? You can't call or visit each one of them. So if they're able to engage in a very low-cost, low-burden way, then the healthcare provider can know which, which person to, to spend their time on who might need extra support. Um, so that was the problem statement. I think what we came up with at the time uh, was a, basically augmented packaging. I mentioned paper was sort of a theme with the education side. It became a theme here. Can we just have a simple augmentation of the blister packs? Uh, the medications mostly came in these uh, rectangular foil packs that you might have seen with you know, uh, clear plastic bubbles and you break the pill out. Can we somehow put a, a phone number somewhere that uh, someone could only see that phone number once they've dispensed their medication? So we created these, well, we went through several iterations. Actually, the first time we did it, we were writing you know, backwards on the, the plastic sides so that when you dispensed it, you could see it correctly through. We, were, we had our own little workshop in the office where you're using medical tape to cover it, all these different you know, prototypes. But ultimately what we came to was a, a, a paper envelope that wrapped around the medication such that when someone dispensed the pill, they could see the number, send in a call. And you know, the, the thought at the time was, well, if someone could do that, then the real enabling factors, they could come in fewer times for medication refills. Because the other piece of the story that I haven't mentioned yet was at that time, the recommended way to, to treat tuberculosis because of this challenge with adherence was what's called directly observed therapy, short course, or DOTS. Uh, again, there's been phenomenal changes in, in that mentality, uh, but 
overall at that time that was seen as the best way to treat, but of course is very burdensome on someone who has to come into the center and be observed taking a pill every time. So the real benefit for the person taking, you know, undergoing, you know, using 99 dots was that they could come for fewer refills and basically take from the comfort of their home because obviously coming into a center means long travel, lost pay, all of these challenges. So all of this came together when with our motivation and the question was can can a system like this empower patients, reduce their travel burden but also maintain high adherence rates and ultimately recurrence-free survival. Awesome. And I really love this theme that you have of innovation, you know, like really looking at a problem and thinking about it in an out-of-the-box way. Like I've personally never seen a phone number inside of a pillow box. Like it's just like the idea of such a thing, like it's not, it's not commonplace at all. So you, you were really, you know, with Microsoft's backing, innovating. You were looking at like really new ways of tackling this problem. But then you staged like Oh, it sounds kind of like a coup, you know, like you took a whole little team from inside of Microsoft, all of you, all three of you kind of left together and started off a new thing. Tell me about that. Like you had you had this research project, you knew it was demonstrating results, you knew that you're having some impact and you knew that it wasn't going to sit inside of uh, a research community if it really wanted to grow. Uh, was it was it hard convincing everyone to go? Did you just do you guys have like beers late one night and then I'll, I'll, I'll submit your resignation the next day or what happened? <laughs> No, it wasn't. I mean, there were, there were challenges, of course. I think the biggest challenge or perceived challenge was how do we convince, you know, leadership within Microsoft to allow us to do this thing? Or, or I mean, it, you know, if there's an opportunity to scale this within Microsoft, let's go for it. But if this is not aligned, then how do we do this separately? Or how, how can we get permission to do this? Because obviously we've developed technology within a private organization. I mean, there, there's there's barriers there. But actually the, the solution to that was, again, through this you know, great partnership and championship of our own managers was to open source the, the technology and be able to take that out. So that was one step was how do we take the innovation outside of a, a closed door setting and, and kind of take it outside. So again, that's, I think what was unique at the time, maybe less unique now, maybe still unique, but I think was was really unique at the time that we had that kind of support to do that. Yeah, particularly from a private corporation like Microsoft that lives off of intellectual property. Absolutely. Well, again, I think credit to the, the mission of the group, the Technology for Emerging Markets group, which was always about impact, always about social impact. So at that time, it was it took some convincing, but it wasn't you know as out of left field as it might sound or it might even be today. Like I said, a lot's changed, not just in TV, not just in you know phone access, but also in just how, how organizations perceive research and, and kind of spin outs and things. But I think that was probably the biggest hurdle. And, you know, not actually not all of us left. I, I ended up leaving to become the CEO. Bill actually maintained a, a foot in Microsoft, which was you know, really advantageous down the road because we could also do research collaborations that way. So I think, yeah, over time, uh, well, for, for me, it was a gradual process of just thinking, OK, well, if this is the idea, if this is traction, if this is something exciting, I'm going to have to do anything it takes to kind of see it succeed. And if that's not research, then maybe that's a startup, maybe that's a new company. And so I think the real trigger point was also that we had started getting some visibility outside. We had won some innovation competitions, which had visibility from donors, but also from government, which was, again, quite unique at the time. There was this thing called the Grand Challenges in TB Control, which was uh, equally co-funded from uh, BMGF and USAID at the time. But what was really important about that funding call, you could say, or competition, was that they actually had government representatives on the committee deciding which technologies they liked. And I think that was, again, a huge, well, a great thing for us ultimately and, and for all the innovations that were kind of recognized there because you almost had buy-in from day one that if this is selected, we'll at least take it to the next step. We'll at least see this at some kind of scale and really measure it, of course. There's still research involved. This still needs to be the right thing, but there was buy-in that we're going to invest in this. Super cool. Yeah, I still think that's quite unique to this day that all the stakeholders were in the room from day one um, and therefore you, you sort of, you had a lot of a jump start maybe on, on scaling things. 
So I think all these things were coming together again. The, the resources were starting to come in. There was interest to scale it up. Microsoft Research was not the right place because of the research angle. So you know, suddenly we need this new organization. So that's when in 2015 we, we founded Everwell. And yeah, convincing convincing people to leave, I think, you know, didn't obviously want to do right by the team. So didn't, you know, in mass take everyone. There was you know, our little <laughs> unit of Bill Knuckle and I, and we, we decided to ultimately invest in this. And then I think from then on started building a team, you know, outside a different type of team. What was your plan of attack? You have the product, you have this idea, this innovation, as you know now, building an organization or scaling it is so much more than like the thing itself. When you started that journey, uh, you know, maybe in the, if I sat you down in that first year and I was like, Andrew, what's your plan of attack? What would you have said? Yeah, so I think, again, very fortunate that at that time, the technology to do this was relatively stable. I mean, we had proven it already in hospitals. I think we partnered with a local hospital in Bangalore called St. John's and, and already deployed you know, with, with people taking medication and already done kind of user studies. And so a lot of that was stable, you could say, already. So I think the real first step for us was to scale this thing up. We had the opportunity, again, buy-in from the government, excitement there to start scaling this up, actually with the, the TB HIV program, because um, there are a lot of overlaps between populations with HIV and populations with TB. Um, and so we really, we had this mandate to scale it up and I think it was like 30 sites, you know, in the next six months. So we had to start building a team that was, you know, had expertise in training, capacity building, kind of program implementation, because that's, you know, not what we had at Microsoft Research. We had technology experts, research experts, but the implementation side we had to build. So our, our first challenge was to build up that team and then basically travel, travel to all these sites where, you know, unfortunately my language skills were not up to the mark, but was, you know, fortunate enough to be able to travel to these sites and kind of see the, the settings and understand and make sure things were still appropriate. But also build a team that had those language skills and, and this, the capacity building training skills to start implementing insights and training staff and, and kind of uh, onboarding patients. So that was the real first challenge for us. That makes sense. What an opportunity for you to have. Would you say 99 Dots, as it was back then, was it set up initially to be what they call GovTech? Like, you know, like there's a kind of way of working with government. Was that the kind of organization you were? Um, or did you find yourself more in the nonprofit or private sector space in those first few years? Yeah, so Everwell was set up as a, a for-profit for various reasons, but one being that we could stand behind our technology in a certain way. We really wanted to you know, invest in a team and, and invest in a product as a company would. So we were for-profit, but, but always dedicated to social impact and, and never about the profit itself. Especially at the beginning, it was really about you know, championing this idea and scaling it up. So I, I don't know, I, I actually haven't heard the word GovTech or I'm not sure the full context there, but, but really it was about, again, almost that same research mentality. We're just going to build this. It's going to be open source. It's going to be a community, a global good. Uh, you know, we're going to be the champion behind it because you need, you know, an engine behind something like this, especially to get it over a first crest. But it really was meant to be kind of a global good and something, you know, where we're in partnership with the government and, and every step of the way. They gave great feedback on how things should be designed, how it should be integrated, how it can integrate with public care workflows. You've got there's a pharmacist dispensing medication. How does this work with that? There's a health, an OSHA worker, a, a field worker that's visiting houses. How should it work with that? So that was very tightly coupled with the government. They were, you know, we were fantastic partners in that sense. And that, you know, that was again attributed to our early success was just that very uh, tight coupling and partnership and, and championship from the government as well. So I think we at that time we probably weren't thinking so far ahead. Just just really said well, our short term mission is to, you know, we've been asked to scale this, we're going to scale this. And again, want to emphasize that a lot's changed in, in healthcare and, and, you know, 99 dots appropriateness for, for uh, supporting things in, in the world we have today. But at that time, there's actually another, well, 
kind of, again, with the theme of infrastructure and innovation, but there was a, a big change happening. And that was, I mentioned before, the drugs at the time were the intermittent regimen, which means not every day you're taking medication. But I think, again, science and research had shown that a daily dose is actually much less toxic for people and it's easier to remember and there's all these benefits. So the government of India was shifting from these intermittent regimens to a daily dose. So again, with, with this DOTS mentality that we need to observe every dose, it became impractical to, to do DOTS on a daily basis. Um, so we had this, you know, again, fortunate timing, and, and I think this is what also helped propel things early on, was that, we, you know, everyone wanted to change this daily regimen. It's better for patients, better for the program. But there's, you know, maybe mentality-wise, people weren't ready for that, you could say, relaxing of rules that we're not observing every dose. So 99 dots at that time became a, a way to, again, make a better situation for patients where the, the less toxic drugs, daily dose, and less frequent visits, but still, uh, you know, work with the program to give them some kind of daily engagement and daily understanding of the adherence rate. So that's, that's where, again, you know, you always want to think it's a meritocracy, that the best technologies will always win, and I think that, that often happens. But in this case, you know, there was also a huge element of timing uh, where it really was a, a fortunate timing that we had this innovation, there was this program change, and it needed something to be able to, you know, really roll out this new daily measurement. It sounds like a lot of things are really coming together for you at the right time. I, I guess my question was about your your path to scale, you know, and, and as, like, there are a lot of good ideas that people say, the government's going to like this, they're going to buy it, they're going to scale it. That's kind of like the default thing that everyone working in the nonprofit sector wishes could happen. I think you're in an unusually good place in that you had government at the table right from the start. Um, but my question is, in terms of your 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 clients or your scale model, your business model, was the idea that you would sell it to this state and that state and that state? Or was the idea that you would you work in direct with organizations? Were you going to partner with pharmacies? <laughs> like how did what was your path to scale that emerged yeah, absolutely. At this time, you know, exclusively working in the public sector. So it was all through government infrastructure. And again, very fortunate that we were working directly with the central government, so the, the federal government, you could say, of India. So at that time, you know, there's still a lot of autonomy and, you know, states run things their own way a lot of times. But some of these big changes like drug changes and kind of uh, technology that happens at a central level. Um, so honestly, we, you know, the, the, the scale up plan was sort of piggybacking the rollout of these new drugs, these new daily reg regimen, because it didn't happen overnight in every place. But everywhere the new daily drugs would launch, we would launch alongside of that with, with our, you know, 99 dots. Um, so working directly with the central government, that's how we sort of got scale in the early days. Wow, that's great. That was really exciting. Yeah, for sure. And I think that maybe it's an example of doing it right from the start because you had government at the table. And let, let me just recount. Like, I think there's there's three key assets you had right from the get-go. One, you had Microsoft Research Technology in your wheelhouse. Two, you had government TV backing right from the start. And three, you had this change in policy, which made regular dots, uh, you know, directly observed therapy infeasible. So there was like a, like a change in health policy that really pushed towards the adoption of your system. You must have, it sounds like very smooth sailing. It sounds like it, everything just like worked right from the start. Was it just that easy in the first few years? No, of, of course not. I think I'm just, I'm definitely <laughs> highlighting the fortuitous environment that also helped things scale because I think that's, again, for other innovators, they're often frustrated when things don't go somewhere, their idea is great, but it's still not working. So I think a lesson I've learned is that there's a lot of things that contribute to the success. Of course, you work 100 hours a week, you have a great team, you have a great idea, but there's also other ecosystem factors that can make or break um, the success of a project. Just talking about some of the challenges, I think specifically for this innovation, early days in a small research setting, you can ensure that everyone has a phone, you can ensure that if anything goes wrong, you can quickly reach out to them and support them. But at scale, that's impossible. You know, that doesn't work. And that was, that's the whole point of the challenge is that there's not enough 
you know, humans, healthcare workers, to spend that kind of time on an individual basis. So one thing that didn't work for us, for example, was the toll-free lines. I, I mentioned this missed call system, which, again, no longer exists now, and, and I, we might be a part of the cause for that. But uh, you know, when it's a small-scale project, you can get away with these missed calls. But obviously, the telcos are losing money every time that happens. So uh, you know, as we started to scale up, uh, so many missed calls were coming on the, our, the lines that we were renting. These are virtual lines. Again, there's no you know, phones and offices. These are virtual numbers. So many missed calls were coming on that we actually got shut down or kind of telcos wouldn't support it anymore. So we, you know, that was a big challenge for us. Immediately we had all these phone numbers out in the wild. People were calling and suddenly the calls aren't going through. Uh, so we had to quickly adapt and iterate. And, and basically the solution was to come up with toll-free phone numbers. So now these are paid for by us, not by anyone calling, but they're, they're hosted lines that are paid for. So that was one challenge. You know, again, something that you know, did, would never have seen in a research setting, a small setting, everything works great, or can work great, but at scale, you run into new challenge, and that was just one of them. Uh, so that was, a, that was a big challenge. I mean, there's, there's enormous challenges with phone access, for example. Again, in a city like Bangalore, you might have very high, you know, phone access, and again, things have changed over the last 10 years, and phone access is increasing, but there's always, or there, there still is, you know, disproportionate access to phones by, you know, by gender, by geography, rural versus urban. So there's still many people that don't have a daily access to a phone. So that was something, again, you know, we encountered at scale is how do we have solutions for that population or how do we reframe this technology as, you know, rather than something for everyone, this is something for people with access to phones who are comfortable calling, et cetera. So we had a lot of adaptations and challenges trying to make this as accessible as possible because, again, you're, you know, this is for the entire population recovering from TB. So that was another big challenge there. And maybe just last one, since I had three good factors, I can mention three challenges. I think the other one was, you know, I mentioned that the initial sites were these TB HIV sites. And I think, you know, you want to feel like, well, in a lot of places, TB and, and all these different disease verticals have been independent for a long time. And so there's some overlap, but they don't always aren't fully aware of each other's workflows. Sometimes there's, you know, overlap responsibilities. Sometimes there's, you know, challenges kind of courting those two. So that was, a you know, an early learning. And just as a, a fun anecdote, you know, one example was, uh, in, in the TB infrastructure, for example, they had a system of obviously geography. You've got a, a country, a state, a region, a district, a talk. There, there's all these different ways to break down geography. But on the HIV side, they had the same system, but actually not always the same breakup. You might have a district rename something else in one system or different geographical boundaries. And of course, a lot of these things change over time, but you had disparate systems. So suddenly you have to untangle that. In some ways, you're like you're solving, you know, census level data, you're understanding, you know, working with both programs, say, look, we both got the same district. There's different names. We need to think of one or else the programs can't work together. And part of that's our role. Part of it's not our role. But those are some of the challenges, again, that you see at scale. And I think... Again, with the theme of kind of infrastructure-wise, it's almost like you're having to step back to an infrastructure level to solve that problem before these innovations can even take hold, uh, because you have to solve this problem of, of naming a district. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like in your mind, you had this 99 dots innovation. You had this thing that was going to do phone calls. You didn't sign up for this with the idea that you were going to renegotiate telco revenue models or that you're going to have to deal with phone access in all these different states. But obviously, if those things aren't there, then your innovation isn't going to work. How did these challenges directly affect you or your team? Like, what did you what did you do when you came up against those kinds of barriers? Did you expand the scope of the work that you're doing? Did you bring in partners or like, how did you evolve in the face of those challenges? 
I think for the most part, the challenges are what drove the work. I mean, it's, that's the interesting part. Maybe that's the engineer in me, or that's just, you know, everyone wants, you want to solve interesting problems. And sometimes they're more interesting than others, but I think that that's what made the work always interesting is that there's always something new. You never know what's going to hit the next day. And I mean, you know, there are worse things that could happen, but these are all solvable problems. So, uh, you know, I think mostly drove our team. It was exciting. It was a reason to kind of come together and brainstorm, go back to the whiteboard and let's rethink this from the beginning, or, you know, let's, let's find a solution to this. So I think that was a lot of the excitement in the early days. And, and maybe, you know, just kind of, again, pivoting, you know, 99 Dots was the early work, but of course, what we do now is much broader than that. I think part of the challenge, again, that we ran into at that time was that you've got this cool innovation, but it doesn't connect to all these other pieces. I mentioned there's diagnoses, there's, you know, drug dispensation, there's subsidies from the government, there's all these other pieces that are part of care. And if there are digital systems that are not talking to each other, it, it also limits the ability to scale this up because as a healthcare worker, now I've got to learn a new system. I've got this 99.0 software, which, you know, I use for this. And I've got this inventory software, which I use for this. And I've got diagnostic software. So it's actually limiting our ability to scale because it was an extra burden. It's an extra step. So that was one of the other challenges that we faced early on. And, and kind of the realization was, well, you know, there's a more basic need here that could enable this innovation and others, which is you know, a core infrastructure, a core digital system that integrates all these different pieces of care. Why are we thinking of adherence in isolation? It's connected to this cascade of care, as they call it, or this recovery journey that someone's going on. So we need a broader system that connects all of these pieces uh, to really fully to fully realize the the power of any particular innovation. Even today, you've got you know different innovations in diagnostics, new machines, AI, all of these things. But if they're not connected to a core system, they're always going to be limited to their impact because you know care is holistic and they, they touch different pieces. So I think that was another challenge that we faced, where the exciting solution was, well, do we want to expand the technology that we built, the platform that we built to cover these other aspects of care? Cover means, and sometimes just integrate. It doesn't mean rebuild what someone else has already done, but kind of design a common language, a common architecture that they can all speak to each other and help integrate that. So the problem you're solving is that a healthcare staff can log into one system and see everything from uh, you know, drug supply to adherence to, you know, again, subsidies, financial subsidies for patients for uh, registration of new patients. So that was that was another big pivot for us is almost taking a step back to take 20 steps forward and kind of work with the government to design this or redesign or support or kind of modernize, you could say, this digital system for how they manage the entire TB program. I think we're seeing the glimmers of Everwell Hub in this picture. I want to hear all about that. But let me also just highlight, I think, something that's really unique about your approach and I think speaks to the strength of how your organization has evolved, which is, I think a lot of tech founders or innovators, they have one innovation and they're attached to it. They're stuck to it. You know, like I build this widget. I have this software. That's the one thing that I do. And that's what, you know, my company is built around. It very much sounds like, Andrew, like you looked at the situation with TB. You were like, okay, I have this one adherence tool, this 99 dots thing, which is about the we call blister packs and how they work. But then you realize that there was a much broader need. And instead of saying that's somebody else's job, you said, what do we need to do to deliver this at scale in India? And then you you did it. <laughs> and that's how the journey that that you've taken. And and that's I think it's a very strategic decision. It's a very unusual decision. And it's it's very necessary in some of the environments that we work in. And it puts a lot of strain on the organization. You know, it means that maybe you started off wanting to just hire people that would manufacture your blister packs or, you know, man your toll-free call centers. But then, you know, as you started to deal with phone procurement, as you started to deal with HIV in response to the problem that you were facing, you needed to expand your services uh, and the scope of what you were doing. I mean, a lot of it came down to our, our mission. I mean, our, our, you know, maybe in the early days, it was around championing 
a, a product or an innovation, but it really was always about improving the access to healthcare, supporting the government. Like I said, going back to the model we, you know, sort of perfected in the Microsoft research days, there is a domain expert partner who's telling you what the real challenge is. So you can keep pushing your innovation if you want, but if you're hearing that there's another core challenge and your mission is to you know, solve these challenges and improve the overall access to care, then I think decision becomes pretty easy. And so I think for us, you know, we, we heard loud and clear and saw ourselves that there was another limitation that, you know, wasn't related to our original problem space or, you know, it's related, of course, but is something itself, something entirely different. And with our mission to, you know, positively impact the, the TB space in India at the time, then it was pretty clear that this is where, you know, we need to need to work. And that is at that time, broader digital infrastructure for the program. As an innovator, you want to you can't give up the first time someone doesn't like your idea or the first time it doesn't work. But, you know, at some point, if you know, you're hearing there's a bigger challenge or you're hearing that something's not working, then it is your responsibility to kind of pivot or or focus. And for us, again, we wanted to solve the most interesting and most the biggest problems that technology could solve in this space. And we heard the this was it. So we ended up, you know, pivoting a lot of our, you know, the, the other you know, 99 dots work still lived on, but we pivoted a lot of our attention and time to this more core infrastructure work because we saw a bigger opportunity for impact. And I think, you know, there's, there's other, you know, lessons learned along the way around how, again, you know, a particular innovation, 99 dots at that time had a lot of, yeah, you know, positive impact around, you know, ability to change the drugs and kind of empowerment. But then, you know, at some point, you know, there's populations that doesn't work for us. You need to be, you know, willing and able to say, well, it's not appropriate for that environment. So let's not push that innovation there. In fact, they need something far different that, you know, maybe so what someone needs is actually financial subsidies so they can afford food so that the, the medication can have its proper effect. And so I think there's a bit of, yeah, I think getting at is you want to kind of stick to your guns in some ways because you can't, again, give up the first time you hear no, but you also need to be flexible enough to recognize when the environment's changing and where you can be most useful if that's your goal. Phenomenal, Andrew. Thinking back on those years, you know, like those, maybe those first five years of Everwell, what was the most stressful moment for you? Like, what was the moment where you like woke up at night sweating in your bed because there was something that you personally needed to sort out? I mean, one of the early, I just, more of a personal anecdote, you know, the early Instantation of 99 dots was basically a server running on my laptop. There was no cloud space. There was no virtual space at the time. I think that's, again, no one would do that anymore, but at the time, that's how we did it. So it was running on my laptop, which I had uh, set up in the office. I was, I think, traveling for the weekend and somewhere else, and it went down overnight, of course. I mean, you could predict that from course, the beginning, the but it went down. the one you step away. <laughs> The one weekend you step away, it went down and suddenly you think, you know, there's a lot of emotional pressure. I mean, there's there's people that are counting on the system. You know, at the time, if you called, you would get a message back that said thank you. And that was everyone was trained. That's the protocol. If you called, you get the message back that says, you know, we received your call. Thank you. Uh, then, you know, you've done your job. But if the system is down, then potentially someone's freaking out. They're calling 20 different times. They're not getting the result. They're feeling so, you know, a huge emotional responsibility. So. Uh, I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night and having to v- VPN back to the office and restart everything and kind of debug things. And again, that'll, you know, that's a small scale issue. I think at that time there were like 20 people on the platform, but even fast forwarding, you know, to yesterday or last week, you know, th- there are times when the system goes down for various reasons. And I think those are always really stressful moments, not because technology doesn't go down. It goes down all the time. But, you know, there's just there's a lot, a lot of yeah, responsibility, I guess, when you're running a healthcare system and it's almost to a different degree that your know, system goes down, then someone's not getting their life-saving medication, someone's not getting their, their uh, payments that, that, that they need. So I think there's just, those are always the moments that, that keep me up at night or wake me up at night is if something goes down and it may not be your fault, maybe something completely different, maybe it is your fault also, but those moments are kind of panic moments for, for us. And luckily we've solved a lot of that, you know, there's just proper ways to do engineering to kind of have redundancy and other ways to prevent that from happening. But those were definitely the uh, scary moments. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the thing about being CEO is that the buck stops with you. And as you said, every system in the world goes down at some point or another. And the, what, the joy of what we're doing is that we're, we're trying to save lives. And the hardship of it is that 
maybe you maybe you espouse work-life balance. Maybe you have personal commitments. Maybe you have a family that needs you for something. But if that server goes down in the middle of the night and whatever, your first, second, third line of support fails, then the CEO is going to get the call and you're going to have to deal with it. And that's the, the joy and the sorrow of sitting in that role. Absolutely. I asked Andrew, looking back on all the years and all the twists and turns of Everwell, what are some of the moments that made it all worthwhile? You know, really excited for the work that we've done globally. You know, the, the Everwell Hub is now in 15 different countries to different levels of scale. India is the, the largest, of course, where we're supporting the national TV program. The Nick Shea platform is, is run on the Everwell Hub, and that's been extremely rewarding and just, you know, the best opportunity in the world to, to have impact. Is, as we said at the beginning of this, you know, one-fourth of the world's TV patients, uh, you know, are in India. Um, so being able to be a part of that, you know, just a small part even uh, of that the mechanism or the, the group of people that are devoting their time and lives to, to addressing that issue is, is you know, enormously rewarding to the point that you know, now I think 2.5 million new active records a year come onto the platform. There's 30 million records you know, overall. So those are all you know, systems that have been digitized. But you know, if you really focus on the human case, those are all people that are now able to access care in different ways than they could before. And I think you know, one of the amazing programs that the government here has run is a, a DBT scheme, which is a, a way for the government to give financial subsidies for people uh, who are diagnosed with TB, you know, primarily for nutritional support. Um, and so that was a huge, you want to talk about a challenge, that was a huge challenge is getting that infrastructure to work. Because we're, of course, we're not moving any money, but we're building the technology to enable banks to, to move that kind of money based on logic, program logic. So that's a huge technical challenge. You're working with you know, antiquated banking software. You have to cover every edge case because if some money goes that shouldn't go, it's a big problem. You know, duplication of records. You know, there, there's lots of you know, poss- potentially duplicated records or someone who's had multiple cases. So, so anyways, lots of ch- you know, challenges there to solve that. But I think you know, hugely rewarding feeling knowing that you know, millions of dollars that the government has set aside to support these people is actually going through because of technology we built. And you know, it wasn't there. Well, it's running at a scale that was never happened before. So I think that that is a, a an exciting moment when that happens. I mean, I think also when you know recognition comes for the platform, forget the company, the product, any of that, but for the work that's going into TB, I think that's always exciting. So you know, we've had some you know shoutouts from you know Satya Nadella, from you know Prime Minister Modi ji, from from various people who kind of you know see the work. And again, the, the shoutouts are for the work, but I think that's always you know really exciting because I think in a lot of ways TB gets. It's getting more attention, but it's you know traditionally been neglected or, or less less funding, less resources, less attention than other things. So I think it's always exciting when the work gets recognized because it's not even you know about us; it's about all the healthcare workers that are kind of spending their spending their lives and working for very little salary to to, to address this. So they they get recognized as well. So that's always exciting. That's awesome. So just to wrap up our show, a few last questions from our rapid fire. First question for you, Andrew, is about aid. Donors and investors want to support the kind of work you do. What are some of the challenges for organizations like yours in working with donors and investors? Do you have any suggestions for donors and investors and how to do this work better? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we primarily work with donors. I think we've been very fortunate to be bootstrapped. So, uh, you know, the primary of those two, we work more with donors. And I think, you know, obviously have to be incredibly thankful for all the partnerships we've had. Nothing we've been able, nothing we've done would be possible without their, their generous support. But I think one, one challenge that's come up, you know, repeatedly as a for-profit technology organization is just how best to work with donor organizations. They're just, I don't know if it's legacy or if it's, you know, there, there are good reasons for this, but, you know, primarily donor funds go through NGOs or through implementing partners. Um, and, you know, of course, they bring a lot of uh, implementation expertise and domain expertise and generally have larger teams that can implement things in the field. But when it's a technology-driven project, I think sometimes that relationship 
you know, hurts the project because the, the innovator, the, you know, the technology expert, the kind of the core infrastructure that the reason the funding is coming is for that core infrastructure, it ends up getting diluted through these, you know, partnerships that may not be fully aligned. So I think my advice or my request and something I bring up quite often is that, you know, donor agencies should have technical expertise, you know, within their teams, but also to find more innovative ways to, to support these innovations directly to the innovators themselves. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, innovators are the ones who know their technology the best. They're the ones who are be most motivated to fix things if they're broken and, you know, change things if they're not working well or, or continue doing if they are working well. So finding ways to best, uh, you know, fund or implement or, or support innovation from the innovators themselves. That is on point and I totally agree with you and that problem statement. Do you have any advice? If you could take a step back in time, um, advice that you would give your younger self? Oh, so much. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> one thing, I mean, this, this is something I tell my younger self of yesterday or even today, but just, I just, you know, be a better marketer. I think that's, um, you know, I've, I feel like a lot of people from tech backgrounds and maybe it's not limited to tech, but a lot of people I speak to are always a little shy or a little bit uncomfortable with, with self-promotion, uh, maybe as they should be, there's always exceptions, but generally uncomfortable speaking about themselves or applying for things or speak. And I think that's just holds things back. A lot of folks want the work to speak for themselves and, in an ideal world, the work would speak for itself, but there's so much other stuff going on there. You really do have to be a more active promoter. And I think the best advice I got was from my former manager at Microsoft Research, uh, Suryam Rajamani, who said, you know, it's not about self-promotion. You're doing your, you know, your organization a disservice if you don't talk about the work. It's not about you. If you think about it as self-promotion, you'll never be comfortable, and I'm certainly not. But if you think about it as kind of work promotion or team promotion, then it's a, a net win for everyone. So I, I guess I wish I had been a, a better marketer in early days because it just, again, it magnifies the work and it helps the whole team. Um, so hoping to do more of that now, as I mentioned. But uh, yeah, I wish I'd known that or, or learned that earlier. That's so interesting. And that's so relevant for the, the techies and the geeks among us. Andrew, thank you for stepping outside of your comfort zone to join us on the podcast today. I'm very thankful. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, baby steps. <laughs> Would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? Absolutely. Uh, again, too many people to mention, but uh, Bruce Thomas has been a, an enormous champion. He was a, a consultant for the Gates Foundation. He's been involved with us almost since day one and has helped me you know, develop my leadership skills and business acumen and just kind of helped us think you know, differently about our work and really uh, grow the team. So that's been enormous. I think I already gave a little bit of a shout out, but just to do it again for the Microsoft research folks, again, without their championship and early advice and especially the TEM colleagues, I uh, would never have gotten here. So definitely want to shout out to them. Nice. Life hack. What's one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective, productive, and motivated, particularly during those 100-hour weeks you mentioned? Yeah, uh, I mean, something I wish I had done then again, but uh, have started doing now is I've almost cut out email. I don't know if I can recommend that to everyone, but I felt... What? Yeah, what? over... I mean, <laughs> Obviously, I, you know, we, we got connected on email. I, I try to answer important <laughs> stuff, but I, I think maybe two or three a day at this point because I, I just felt that the time I was putting in to just email as an activity was not proportional to the results I was getting out. So so tried to just, yeah, cut, I mean, not even tried. I think I just stopped responding. And so it happened over time. And luckily my team knows that. So if there's important stuff, they'll poke me in other ways. What did you replace email with? I mean, work, <laughs> other work. I mean, uh, you know. But like, are you, are you interacting with them face-to-face? -face? Is it Slack? Is it something else? Or As much as possible, yeah, face-to-face, -face, of course, there's Slack and WhatsApp and other things. But it's almost like if you're not, if I don't respond to an email when I first read it, I never will. So that's almost what Slack and WhatsApp and some of these other channels are. I mean, they have their own, you know, challenges and distractions, but it's it's just kind of, if you're not, yeah, if I'm not going to respond right away, I probably never will. So I, I do a lot of select all Mark is read uh, for thousands of emails. So apologies if you're someone who's emailed me and I haven't responded, but that's probably why. 
That's fascinating. I want to see a video of you just like in a, a day in your life. That's so different from, from my life, but I think I might be a little old school that way. <laughs> on the reading front, what is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in your industry? Yeah, I'm going to cheat again there, but I think I'm actually not very good at, at, at that kind of thing. I mean, I love, love reading and love hearing about kind of global things, but as far as the particular industry goes, actually what I found easiest, what I'm better at is maybe crowdsourcing this. Um, you know, we've got a good Slack channel at, at Everwell where everyone just posts interesting stuff that they read. And so I found that as a, a great resource for me, because as long as you have a, a group of people who are interested in the same stuff, they're all reading different things at different times in different you know, parts of the world. So uh, I find that a, a good resource for me. Nice. Last question. And this one is just for fun. If there's a book, a blog or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, I mentioned I just started listening to podcasts maybe probably during the pandemic, so the last few years. And the first one that really got me hooked was called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, if you've heard of that. Nothing to do with public health. Uh, mostly it's uh, a really passionate person re, you know, recounting different you know, periods in history in his own way. And it's like six hour long episodes around something interesting in history. And those are really, uh, really interesting and have nothing to do with public health. So I enjoy uh, listening to those on the way to work. Fascinating. What's one episode in particular that you liked? Uh, I've always been fascinated with World War II. So there was a, I mean, a lot, a lot of it goes into wars and things. He did another one on kind of the transatlantic slave trade, another one on uh, the, nu- the development of nu- the nuclear bomb and kind of how that's changed our world. So I, I think basically he just goes and reads 20 books on a subject and then talks for six hours like we're doing now. And so it's, it's good. That sounds fascinating. They should replace, maybe not replace, supplement modern history classes with that kind of content. Uh, that, that sounds really cool. Last Question, Andrew, for anyone who is listening that wants to find out more about your work or you, what's the best way for them to get that information? Probably don't email me, as I just said. If you email me, I will absolutely uh, find it. Um, you know, there's obviously a website uh, for us where we try and collate everything from research papers we're involved with to blogs from the team. Actually, our LinkedIn, you know, again, part of my comment on uh, being bad at marketing means we weren't great at social media at the beginning, but now I've got a good team who's posting more on LinkedIn. So I think a lot of exciting stuff that we do comes out on LinkedIn. Um, can't take any credit for that, but I, I do. That's a great place to, to hear about what we're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to be on the show. This was really a great discussion. Thanks so much, Marina. Really great being here and uh, thanks for having me. Andrew's come a long way from his experimentation and his studies in the Microsoft Research Lab to the massive scale that Everwell supports today. Everwell has expanded to work in 16 countries outside of India. And Everwell Hub itself has been repurposed for other disease verticals, such as HIV, mental health, and even COVID-19. Throughout Andrew's journey from the Microsoft Research Lab to the massive scale of Everwell, you can see the constant juggling act he's needed to manage between cutting-edge innovation on one side and building core infrastructure on the other. His key takeaway for other innovators is that you either need to look for environments that already have the readiness to accept your innovation, or you need to build the kind of organization that can develop that readiness alongside the innovation itself. If we're targeting low-income markets, then I think it's pretty clear we got to do some of that work of building out that infrastructure. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Andrew today. If there are any tidbits that you really enjoyed or questions you have about his journey, let us know on Twitter or LinkedIn at Aid Evolved. And if you like what you heard today, leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'll catch you later.